Well, good morning. It's good to be here with you this morning and to continue our series on journeying with the kings. And I wonder how far the kings have got in your house on their journey to Bethlehem. In our house, the kings or magi have got as far as the top of the stairs. They visited all the bedrooms, but they still have a long way to go to reach the mantelpiece in the lounge. And navigating the staircase can be tricky amidst the coming and goings of all the local traffic in this busy season. When our two daughters were quite small, we would use our wooden nativity crib each advent to make the journey to Bethlehem together. The kings or wise men would start their journey from one corner of the house and Mary and Joseph would set off with a donkey from another corner of the house and meanwhile the shepherds would be tending their sheep somewhere not too far away from the stable which is always placed on the mantelpiece with its empty manger in the lounge. Now, in our house, Mary and Joseph were only allowed to reach the mantelpiece on the morning of Christmas Eve. But the manger would remain firmly empty until after the girls had gone to bed. And then, miraculously, in the middle of the night, Christmas Eve night, a tiny child would appear in the manger, quickly followed by shepherds, sheep, and assorted angels made out of paper doilies and tinsel, and even ping-pong balls, I seem to remember. But the kings, or the magi, would continue their journey around the house for several more days, not actually reaching Bethlehem until January the 6th. And then we would celebrate their visit to the Christ child with an epiphany tea, sometimes eating a galette des rois, which is a traditional French pastry shaped like a large donut to symbolize a crown. And we'd place before the manger the magi's gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh, giving thanks for the commitment of the wise men, for their perseverance and their devotion and drawing inspiration from it for ourselves and for our faith journey. And over the past two weeks, we've been reflecting here at Camborne quite deeply on the first two gifts brought to the Christ child by the Magi. Gold for the king of all creation and frankincense to acknowledge his high priestly role and purpose. And today we're going to think about the third gift that's mentioned in Matthew's gospel narrative, the gift of myrrh. We probably have quite a clear idea of what gold looks like, but we may be less familiar with what myrrh looks like, where it comes from, and what it's used for. Like frankincense, myrrh is an expensive spice used for making perfume, incense, and medicines, And like frankincense, it comes from a small bushy tree cultivated in the Arabian Peninsula. Myrrh was harvested by making a small cut in the bark where the resin could leak out, just like maple syrup or rubber, which we may be more familiar with. And the myrrh resin that seeped out of the bark was collected and stored for about three months until it hardened into fragrant crystals. 
So myrrh in this form looks very similar to frankincense, but it's rather darker in color. And if you want to see what myrrh looks like, come and have a look on the table behind me. And you'll see the difference between the little pot of frankincense crystals, pale and sandy colored, and the myrrh crystals, which are dark and much more somber. The book of Genesis tells us that myrrh was traded via the caravans of camels that crisscrossed the region and the deserts. And though it was not quite as valuable as frankincense, myrrh was still a highly prized commodity. It was used raw, or it was crushed and mixed with oil to make a sensuous perfume. Um, maybe Chanel number no. 5, something like that sensuous and expensive, depending on your taste. So maybe it's no surprise that we find mention of this use of myrrh as a perfume in the Song of Solomon and in the story of Esther in the Hebrew Scriptures. But myrrh had other uses. It was commonly used medicinally to reduce swelling and to stop pain, a bit like an anesthetic. And it's still used in some parts of the world today for a variety of ailments. And I came across an interesting article in a sort of biblical science journal about the um, recent research which shows myrrh may have, and frankincense, may have properties, medicinal properties, for treating arthritis, just in case anybody is interested in that. But more than any other use, myrrh was an essential element in burial customs, to anoint a body before wrapping it in the linen grave clothes and laying it in the tomb. Now, it may seem strange to us, almost macabre, that the last of the three gifts brought by the Magi to the manger and given to Mary and Joseph following Jesus' birth was a spice which was so closely associated with death. And it may seem strange to think about death being a presence at the birth of Christ. But remember, the threat of his death at the hands of Herod was all too real. And in the life of Jesus, myrrh is mentioned three times by three separate gospel writers. The first mention is in Matthew's account of the visit of the Magi to the infant Jesus, which we're now very familiar with because we've been revisiting it week by week. The second mention comes in Mark's gospel, in Mark's account of Jesus' crucifixion, where he tells us that Jesus was offered wine mixed with myrrh as a form of anesthetic to dull the pain of dying on a cross. And the third mention comes in the passage we've just heard read to us today from John's Gospel, where John records that after Jesus' death, Nicodemus provided 35 kilos of a blend of myrrh and aloes. That's approximately 35 bags of sugar. It's a lot. 
and it cost a lot. And this mixture of myrrh and aloes was intended for use in anointing and embalming Jesus' body before wrapping it in linen cloths and laying it inside the tomb, a tomb that was freshly carved out of the rock and generously donated for this purpose by Joseph of Arimathea. These are two remarkable men, Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea, men of wealth and position and influence, but also very human in their frailties. More importantly, perhaps, they are two more wise men who sought the king of the Jews. And Nicodemus's gift of myrrh was a great gift, and Joseph's gift of the tomb was also a great and generous gift. And the gift of myrrh at nativity was undoubtedly a gift of great value. It may well have been the case, as Robin hinted last week, that the treasure that Mary and Joseph received from the Magi helped them to escape to Egypt in the face of Herod's wrath and to live safely and securely there until they could return home to Nazareth. It's a plausible idea. We don't have evidence for it, but it's fairly convincing. And I've also wondered if perhaps Mary kept some or all of the myrrh for a time in the future when she might need it to respond to pain and death in her life, either her own or that of another. The gospel suggests that Mary had great spiritual discernment. She was sensitive, as we know, to God's call upon her life before the birth of her firstborn son. And Luke tells us that shortly after this event, Mary treasured up all the things that had happened and she pondered on them in her heart. And there was more to be pondered on after she and Joseph had presented the infant Jesus at the temple in Jerusalem. For there Mary hears the words of Simeon, his prophetic utterance concerning Jesus' destiny. And he warns her that a sword will pierce her heart too. I wonder if some of you recall the BBC dramatisation of the Nativity a few years ago. It was originally shown in four parts in the week leading up to Christmas. And I found it very interesting that in that dramatised version, the oldest of the three magi who come to the manger uttered very similar prophetic words to Mary about the destiny of her son and what it would mean for her. It's almost as if the words of Simeon had been translated into the mouth of one of the Magi. It's dramatic license, of course, but it has a powerful effect. From the earliest days, then, the thread of suffering and death is woven like a dark thread into the tapestry of Jesus' life. And whether or not Mary knew in full the path that her son would eventually have to travel to a death on the cross. We know that myrrh for Christians 
has come to have a powerful association with Jesus' death and the tomb. Robin reminded us last week of the third verse of the carol, We Three Kings, and listen to the fourth. (coughs) Myrrh is mine, its bitter perfume breathes a life of gathering gloom, sorrowing, sighing, bleeding, dying, sealed in the stone-cold tomb. When you next sing it, just reflect on the words. So the gift of myrrh has been interpreted down the ages as prefiguring Jesus' death and his embalming for the tomb. Jesus might be king, he might be high priest, but he had come into the world to live a human life and to die a human death. And myrrh speaks of the pain and suffering that's part and parcel of what it means to be human. Myrrh stands for the loss and the grief that we are all likely to experience at some point in our lives. And that loss can take many forms. It may be loss through the death of a beloved family member or a close friend. It may be lost through separation from a partner or a parent or a child still living. It may be loss of an unborn baby. Or it may be the cruel day-by-day loss as we watch someone we love being taken from us through physical or mental frailty. But we can also find ourselves grieving at the loss of a job or of our health, loss of homeland, or liberty, or when we have to leave behind a beloved home or neighborhood, or let go of a cherished dream. Many of the losses I've mentioned are individual losses, but I have a sense that the life of Camborne Church as a family this past year has also been marked by some significant shared losses. The departure in March of Peter and Emma, with Rory, Cara and Cameron. The departure in July of Ian and Janice. And the departure soon after of John and Anastasia. And there may be other losses that I'm not aware of. But as we focus on the gift of myrrh this Advent season and as we reflect on its powerful association with dying and the tomb, perhaps that will help us to recognize the level of loss that has occurred individually or corporately in recent months and to acknowledge the sense of bereavement that can result. And this may be an area where the pastoral team has a special ministry to you. There's a certain poignancy in focusing on the significance of myrrh today, the day when Nelson Mandela is finally 
being laid to rest in the tomb. Mandela understood, perhaps better than most of us, the meaning of loss and grief in his life. But he also knew something of God's deep grace and mercy. And reflecting on loss and acknowledging our sense of bereavement is going to become especially important as we move towards the close of one calendar year and the start of a new one with all the anticipation and the promise that entails. Advent is intended as a season of somber reflection and eager anticipation. And as we've journeyed with the Magi over the past three weeks, and as we've reflected on their gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh, it feels a little bit to me as though we've traveled from cradle to grave, from manger to tomb. For the story of Christmas inexorably leads to the story of Holy Week and of Good Friday. If Jesus was to embrace humanity in all its fullness, he needed to live a full human life and to die a full human death. Only that way can he identify with us totally. But we know that Jesus' burial in a borrowed tomb on Good Friday was not the end of the story. On the first Christmas morning, the empty manger in the stable is filled with the presence of God in human form as a baby. And in a similar way, on resurrection morning, the tomb containing Christ's crucified human body returns to a state of emptiness. Jesus is risen from death to new life. Amen. In the tradition of the Eastern Church, whether Eastern Orthodox or Greek Catholic, the second Sunday after Easter remembers those women who came to Christ's tomb bearing spices, including myrrh. They're known as the myrrh bearers. And there's a picture of them behind me from the Eastern iconic tradition. They had names, Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Salome, and there were others. They came to anoint Jesus' body in line with the burial customs of their day. They had known him in life and loved him. They had been there at his death. And they had great respect and desire to love and honor his body. But what they found was an empty tomb with no body. And the linen grave clothes had been laid neatly to one side. And I find it thrilling, actually, that these female myrrh bearers were probably the very first witnesses to the resurrection and in some sense were the first evangelists as they began in their turn to communicate the good news of Jesus' death and resurrection to others, including his male disciples. 
In the picture, you can see them carrying the myrrh. They had brought it to anoint Jesus' body in the tomb, but it wasn't needed there. I wonder what they did with it. I like to think that the myrrh that they brought to the tomb, the myrrh that they bore in love, was used instead for its inherent healing properties amongst those who would need it as they picked up and continued the ministry that Jesus had had during his earthly life on earth. But as well as taking the physical myrrh, they were able to take with them the good news of Christ's death and resurrection to which they were among the earliest witnesses. And that was a message that was a message of salvation for the whole world. And it's a message that we continue to communicate in our own time, for our own day. And I trust that as we've journeyed with the Magi, we are even more inspired to communicate that message in the opportunities we have this Christmas tide, in the many opportunities that are listed in the notices, as Justin said at the beginning. And in that way, we continue the work of Christ on earth, bringing healing and salvation to his world. Amen. And let's close with a prayer. Father God, as we conclude our series on journeying with the Magi, and as we move ever closer to the manger at Bethlehem over the coming week, help us too to be willing and faithful myrrh bearers, bringing your healing power into situations of sadness and suffering amongst those we meet. And help us this Christmas tide also to be faithful witnesses to your saving grace and mercy through the ultimate gift of your Son, Jesus Christ, born as a baby in Bethlehem. Amen. Amen.